0: episode 11 of the cultural capital podcast i'm andy hazel
1: and i'm eloise ross
0: and this week we're going to be looking at pedro almodova's latest film julietta the iranian horror film under the shadow and highlights from the current crop of films on movie but first tate taylor's the girl on the train i used to watch this perfect couple they were the
1: embodiment of true love I want to start my life over again. I saw her. I saw her from the train.
0: Is this her? Can you tell me where you were Friday night? I was in the city and then I went
1: to visit my husband.
0: You mean your ex-husband? It's
1: my understanding that the woman who has gone missing was his nanny. Hey, Tom. Hey, Megan. Rachel, why are you here? Because I'm helping find Megan. I don't think you're helping anybody. I saw your wife with someone. Megan has a therapist. Is that who you saw?
0: What happened that night in the tunnel? Tell me the truth. So The Girl on the Train of stars Emily Blunt, who plays Rachel, who is the titular girl on the train, and she obsess- obsessively observes life as she takes a train from leafy upmarket Westchester County on the outskirts of New York City into the city. But it quickly becomes apparent that this obsession of hers is directed towards a couple of houses that the train passes, all of which seems to be filled with people living without the need of curtains. Through a voiceover, we learn that Rachel feels that her life has been taken over by one of the women in these houses called Anna, who's played by Rebecca Ferguson, and it turns out that this woman is the one, one with whom her partner, Tom, played by Justin Thoreau, was cheating on and left her for, and he who is now raising an infant daughter in the same house. Anna gets help from Megan, who's played by Hayley Bennett, and her disappearance triggers the story that we then enter into. Eloise, what did you make of Girl on the Train?
1: I thought Girl on the Train was a really flaccid story, to be honest. There was not enough stuff on the train. I expected it to be about a woman on a train watching lives, kind of engaging in this voyeuristic daily purpose from the train. You know, there's a launching point from the train and then she just goes and explores the rest of her life and the rest of this plot point of, you know, Mm. not on the train. That was really disappointing. It sounds like a really trivial point, but that was a bit disappointing for me. Because, okay. you know, train films are really amazing.
0: Yeah, they can be. There's certainly a lot of really good examples. Yeah. Um. So I'm taking you You haven't read the book.
1: I haven't read the book, no. Right. So I wasn't sucked into the juicy plot already. Having said that, it's a very obvious kind of clunky story, so it gives everything away very early on and, and there's, you know, almost no surprises. So the, the plot doesn't really matter all that much in the end.
0: Yeah, my main memory is of the, th- the three main characters of Rachel and Anna and Megan. Anna is like this frustrated rich woman who misses out on being the other woman which seems like fairly shallow. I mean, I feel like her character could be quite rich and in the book probably is. And Megan, I just remember being quite a self-controlled hedonist and Rachel is an alcoholic who with a fixation on a life that was only ever portrayed as vacuous and dull. And that was the thing that I thought was really missing was that the allure that is meant to be... Which should be quite obvious if you're living in such a beautiful part of the world and you're really moneyed and you've got this space and this house and this luxurious yeah, lifestyle. I mean, it was they, never...
1: They kind of did set up the allure of her life. You know, she's... it. it quickly becomes evident that she is not just watching some random lives from these train windows, She is in fact watching the lives of people who her ex-husband and his new life. Um, And she sort of says in a kind of wanton way, that was my house, that was the first house that we bought together you know, so she's got this sense of ownership of what her life used to be and perhaps should still be. So that is established very much. She's got that that desire but the rest of her personality there it just there wasn't a whole lot to it and not a lot of um, impetus behind her decisions I found I thought the plot exposition was really clunky to be honest absolutely
0: yeah it was very confusing with the flash forwards and flashbacks and I think in the yeah. book it sounds like this is handled much more smoothly yeah it I, was had a, strange. I
1: had a big problem with the flashbacks because the you know, it's set up and it, it's mostly Rachel's story, but you get perspectives from Anna and you get a perspective from what's her name? Megan. Megan. Up until the point at which she disappears. It kind of jumps all over the place between whose perspective it is and where it's coming from. So you have this event and then there's I don't know, maybe a third of the way through it says four months earlier goes into some sequence of events that was four months earlier. And then at some point you can tell it's jumped back to present day. Yes,
0: but it was difficult yeah. to, at which point. And then
1: there's like, it's one month earlier. And I'm like, is it one month earlier from that original point or from this point at which it is sequentially proceeded to now? It was very confusing in that way. I felt like that was handled very clunkily. That sense of timing. I also thought it was really interesting. I don't know if you had this sense as well, but when it started, because it was on this train, very austere, upstate New York type of on the Hudson autumnal look, I had this sense that it was a period piece, you know, something from Mm. from the 50s where business people used to travel in, you know, from upstate into Manhattan more regularly. And then all of a sudden, there's this close up of her drinking from this drink bottle. And I'm like, that's kind of a modern day drink bottle to be in this film from the nineteen fifties. Anyway, and then it was unbelievable <laughs> that it is in fact just in present day and it just had this weird distancing. It seemed like very little little included to get you involved in the story before it slammed you into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really felt like this should have been handled with a different director. I mean, it could have been much, much more interesting, I think. It it does promise quite a lot. There's a lot of interesting themes going on. The flashback, I understand, is meant to make you more aligned with Rachel's state of mind, where she's trying to piece together memories mm-hmm. or she's trying to work out what's real and what isn't. And so that could have been used really, really successfully, I think. Perhaps even it reminded me a little bit of, in at least the look. And actually, actually, that's something we haven't talked about yet, which I think is one of the strongest points, is the uh, Charlotte Bruce Christensen cinematography, because she insisted on shooting on film, which is pretty right. unusual. Nowadays, it adds so much more cost. Um, but she, I do like the way that she gave a different feel to each of the different characters. So with Rachel, he had the bobbing camera with trying, you know, the alcoholic, you know, blurred vision. Mm. And then with with Anna, it was much more austere. It was much more clinical. And it, the look itself reminded me quite a bit of Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah, which I thought okay. was another really well shot film with a different yeah. cinematographer. But it still had that cold slate grey skies and these kind of nice houses. But then they're all. It's all depicted as this quite distasteful place you don't really want to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that commentary about Fifty Shades of Grey, actually. And, you know, it's very easy to kind of present upstate New York and this middle-class privileged life as something that people just want to get away from because it's so shallow. Um, And this movie does it, but maybe not in a very interesting way at all. I was quite disappointed by this... If you can hear some sound effects, we're having a very windy day in Melbourne yes. at the moment. So that's what's going on. We're unfortunately not soundproofed in this room, and we're getting some, um, some <laughs> Melbourne weather yes, into the sounds, recording. Yeah.
0: One thing I wanted to ask before you leave the girl on the train is, did you feel that these characters were defined by their relationships to men? Mm.
1: I have quite a few more things to say about this, actually. But um, on that note, I did find that I had quite a bit of sympathy with the Rachel character as we were put into her perspective of trying to unravel her because she's an alcoholic so she drinks and she blacks out and basically it's a a process kind of a really daggy psych 101 process of, of going back to the places where events happened and trying to trigger memories so that was you know a little bit simplistic
0: yeah this is part of what i thought was the best qualities of the story which I felt were underexplored or they were skipped over in a lot of cases because the, she is a very potentially very interesting protagonist because you don't get much backstory. There's, you'll have to bond with her via her actions and her behaviour, which seems erratic, obsessive, and for a lot of the time I was just like, why can't you just move on? I mean, what is so great about this was... Well, I'm yet to see anything that was valuable in your previous life that makes it so important that you get it back. And particularly, you know, Justin Thoreau is... He's always kind of a slightly slimy guy. I mean, he's mm. fantastic in *Malcolm and Drive*. He was perfectly cast in that as you know, a slimy film exec um, or director. But he, and here, he's you know, you can never I can never quite get the charisma that was necessary, I think, for that role that required his power over women or his ability to live these multiple lives and these the sorts of um, skills necessary to be able to pull that off for such a long time.
1: Yeah, um, I like Justin Throw a lot. I mean, I think he's very good. So in this film, I feel like you're right. It could have been anybody in that role, and it wouldn't have mattered because. <laughs> He's just a figure.
0: Mm. The acting is fantastic. I mean, the cast is pretty perfect, but I just think that we're just underserved by the um, material. We haven't even mentioned Alison Janney, who I think is the only likeable person in the entire film.
1: Oh, she's excellent. She's
0: likeable in everything, I think.
1: Oh, I like Laura Prepon too, but, you know, she's only in it super briefly.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, and Lisa Kudrow.
1: Yes, Lisa Kudrow, totally, (laughs) definitely, yeah. All of these awesome women kind of rocking it out. But unfortunately, I think those three women that we just mentioned in the Um, as secondary characters were better than the three main ones that we were offered. I mean, Emily Mm. Blunt is fantastic, so we Mm. can't kind of go over her, but her character, maybe not so much.
0: Mm. I'm looking forward to her being Mary Poppins in Uh. in 2018. (laughs) Maybe not everyone else is, but I'm... Yeah,
1: I don't know. I'm (laughs) I'm a bit bit hesitant about appreciating it, but she will be very good anyway, so... Mm. But I just wanted to mention, I'm just so excited about movies set on trains. The Lone Pine Film Festival is on at the moment in Lone Pine, California, They have it every year and celebrate the location um, that are used in so many Westerns. And one of the talks is this presentation on trains in Western films. And there's this like old engineer who is involved with a lot of Western film productions is giving this presentation on a whole bunch of trains and what they signified and how they were used in Westerns. And I just got so excited about (laughs) trains. And I was thinking about movies in which trains are like a key part. And I think you and I were talking about this, Andy... I feel like the the train as a device as a cinematic device was not very was not used to its full potential in this film, which was a real shame. It was just like a throwaway. Like, oh, my God, here's an interesting thing from which someone could spy, you know, on their old life where it was not really explored to its full mm. potential. But, like, there are some great ones, you know, like Murder on the Orient Express, the crack-up Strangers on a Train, obviously. <sighs> yeah. Gaslight. There's this terrific line at the start of Gaslight where this woman is talking about maybe murder novels or something, and she says... I'm afraid I enjoy good murder now and then. Anyway, it's just it's just excellent. Like it's really. I I beautiful. was actually
0: expecting this to be more like the Agatha Christie novel Four Fifty from Paddington, mm, where somebody I did hear could...
1: someone mention that. Oh, yeah. did you?
0: All oh, right, perhaps it was me. Do you, are yeah. you familiar with the premise? No, no, no. Oh, okay, so somebody's leave, you know, leaving on a train. There's another train going roughly the same speed by, and she manages to look through a window and see somebody kill somebody, and then the train's ch- speed just, changes again oh, and they disappear. Excellent. So it's just, yeah. Yeah, I was hoping it would be something more like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, because no, there was so much. Cold lighting. I mean, with the lighting in the in the modern trains, it, like it seemed like it was quite difficult. No, there was a, the interview with the cinematographer in which she was talking about how she wanted to give use as much warmth as she can because there mm. is so much cold lighting on the trains and there's the reflections.
1: Yeah, maybe. I I don't know. I just I just wanted to see more kind of done with the train as a cinematic device. I was thinking about uh, Wolfgang Schivelbusch. He talks about the train like a, a new panoramic vision going in the Industrial Revolution, how it changed the way that we saw things and how it changed our relationship between time and space. By condensing them into one, because all of a sudden we could traverse long distances. In a lot of cinema studies, I think people draw on this theory as the cinema screen is a voyeuristic kind Mm. of window into something, in the same way that the train would present some sort of window onto another life from which you were removed. And that it's a really disorienting thing. And I just felt like there was a little bit of alignment between, you know, the train kind of presenting a disorienting reality to Rachel. And she further disorients herself by being off the train. I just felt like it just wasn't really... Mm. It wasn't really doing anything for me in that way. I also
0: thought that there was an underused character who was the never the man who was never named, who was watching her watch
1: Yeah, he watching was a bit people. of a red herring, I think. Yeah, This guy yeah. on the train who watched her getting drunk and then apparently saved her at one point. Um, which he mm. remembers, but, yeah, he then just became nothing.
0: Yeah, so there's all these layers of scopophilia going on that were never really yeah. satisfyingly resolved, I didn't think. I was also thought Danny Elfman's score was unusual f- for him in that it was quite, it wasn't very Elfman, it wasn't very Burton, or no. it wasn't very Simpsons. Mm, a bit um,
1: forgettable. I can't remember any of it. Yeah,
0: there was a few nice jarring parts when tension you know required it, but, again, I was really hoping for something that was more either echo the f- train rhythm or something like that or somehow... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give an insight into her state of mind, which is usually the purpose of those scores, but I felt like his was surprisingly bland.
1: Yeah. Do you have anything
0: else to say about the girl on no, the train? No,
1: nothing else to say. It's a bit of fun. It gets very trashy. Trashy, gory. Our cinema was laughing quite a lot. Yeah,
0: there was quite a few points where there was laughter, which I'm not entirely sure was intended from Tate Taylor.
1: Yes, no, maybe not intended, but, you know, there's a bit to get out of it. The Girl on the Train is out, wide release, released on October 6th by Universal. So it's out already, so get to it.
0: <laughs> so from one film that could have been made by anybody about a train to a film that couldn't have been made by anybody else that also features a train, and this is Pedro Almodovar's Julieta. Julieta?
1: Julieta is based on short stories by Alice Munro. Julieta is a personal drama, a fictional film memoir of sorts, told mostly in flashback, again, by the titular Julieta, who is writing an elliptical tale of her life, from the age of 25 to somewhere in her late 50s. After present-day Julieta, played by Emma Suarez, seems ready to move to Portugal with her artist partner, she makes a rash decision to remain living in Madrid and begins a letter to her estranged daughter going back to her life on a train at the age of 25. And this young Julieta is played by Adriana Ugarte. So this train journey will forever take her in a new direction in her life. With the occasional return to the present-day narrator, her life story unfolds on screen amidst a stunning palette of Spanish-Portuguese patterns and colours in clothing, production design, everything you can think of. So in addition to being another powerful and engaging story of a woman from Almodovar, it's just glorious to look at. So Andy, given that Almodovar is so well-loved for his aesthetic, did you find enough character to draw you in here, or is it a pure exercise in style?
0: That's a really good question. Almodovar has been known to put style above substance. Perhaps people were accusing his previous film. I'm so excited of, of those charges. Mm-hmm. But I think that Julieta just... It, just it's, it's hard to explain how good this film is just through a description. Like, your description was accurate. And my, my description was... More, I was thinking it's actually mainly about women coping with the absence of a partner or another woman, or in this case, a daughter or a mother. And which, again, sounds like, oh, you know, it's going to be not offer very much for me or how is this going to become an enlightening film, but it's just stunning. Mm. I mean, he's this is, I think, up there with um, All About My Mother, Volver, and Talk To Her, which I think are his three great, greatest or most respected films. It is, I don't know, it's quite a languidly paced, but it's just so beautiful. He just kept wanting to look at everything. I mean, the way he organises the Mason scene, the way he, uh, the clo- the costumes, the makeup, the the lighting, the, his use of colour, he's really well known for. And again, you know, it's just gorgeous to watch. It's really nice in a way to be able to go to this familiar world where Almod- Almodovar is so clearly in charge of his powers that you just... I don't think Spain ever looks any better than it does in one of his films.
1: Oh, totally. And
0: it is a pretty gorgeous place if you've ever been there. But this is definitely a case where the the quality of the material matches the style. Um, to get back to your question... So um, Emma Suarez and the other actors that he charges seem to be perfectly cast. They seem to feel like a family, or they when he ages them over the previous thirty years. Because I think, you know, at the beginning and towards the end, she's wearing. A trench coat, which is a bit like you know a detective, because you in a way you are trying to f- solve why the, the why of the mystery of the premise of the film, which is why is there a separation between her and her daughter? Why is she alone? Why is she making this decision not to go to Portugal? Um, and then if you flash back to the tra- beginning of the train, she's dressed like someone from Banana Rama with the, you know the eighties bouncy hair and and these you know really bright clothes. And it, it just feels perfect. It doesn't feel it, feel. it feels like it should jar or it should be somehow disingenuous, but it, each time it perfectly reflects how, what's going on in her life. And so the transformation of Julietta across those 30 years, I just think, was absolutely masterfully done.
1: I feel like the two actresses that played um, ju- both Juliettas looked so alike, I almost couldn't tell them apart. I mean, obviously they looked different, but they were just treated so well in the by this um, cinematography and by the the costume design um, that they just, I almost thought they were the same. Yeah, and
0: same with Antia as well, her daughter, who's, yeah. I think, maybe three different actresses play her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was fantastic. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it's, I mean, there's definitely this, um, this sort of integrity to the story that you need. So I think he, he's always honor seems to honour women's experiences or their emotional states, which I think is quite unusual for a male director, at least, or somebody who's um who gets to work with the sorts of budgets and with the sorts of respect that he does
1: i feel like i mean we we were talking about it in terms of its plot in which this woman has been separated from her daughter and she's trying to figure out why so it kind of seems like it's you know it's a big downer but even though that that content is you know quite heartbreaking and we do get moments of like you know terrific pain on on i feel like all characters parts it's it's totally upbeat as a film. It's very, mm, yes, yes. you very know, It's very easy to engage with. It's fast-paced. It's focused on uh, Julietta's energy, and she's so energetic. She's such an energetic character, um, and she seems almost always in control of her life. I mean, there are certain things at which she faces kind of, you know, trouble and she cannot control, but in many cases she seems very on top of things.
0: You, you never really pity people in his films. You, they, you always feel they're living these blessed lives in a way because partly because, you know, he's building the world around them, but also they're, they're always strong characters they're always motivated by good by a sense of absence that they want to f- fulfill mm. so like in all about my mother it was you know there's an absent parent yeah. or absent, yeah there's d- different family members who seem to be disappearing so there's the it kind of begins as a domestic drama but then it ends up taking on this gorgeous not never quite melodramatic well sometimes he, he does get go well into melodrama but in this case it was quite tightly pulled back i think partly because of Alice Munro's story and
1: mm-hmm. Interesting you mentioned melodrama. I wanted to say that I love his style and everything. You know, it's not just the, you know, the Spanish reds and blues, but there's even this moment where the, you know, the younger Giulietta is teaching. She teaches classical literature in a school and her, Outfit is this eighties brown suede, which matches the classroom chairs. You no, know, all of that kind of works as well. Yeah, so he he's very on top of his design and on top of mood and color and how this all fits. He's not always super subtle, mm. but I don't think it's ever. Well, maybe sometimes it's a problem. For instance, you mentioned I'm so excited. I just think that film is insufferable, and I love that Julia is a return to form. Mm, yes, um, I'm so appreciative of this film. He's not always the most subtle, but you're always on board for it I wanted to just mention there's a moment at which Julieta's life changes once again sort of maybe about a third of the way through the film Uh, it's this very dramatic moment and she has an argument with her husband or her partner and you can see you know they live in this beautiful coastal town and all of a sudden, it's not sunny anymore. Like it starts to kind of be grey and windy, and they don't focus on the weather, you can just tell. So it does very well sort of set the mood. And then a bit later, you know, there's this big close up of storm clouds. So you know that he's aligning this kind of classical symbolism and mythology with his cinematic kind mm. of atmosphere. Something like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, this fantastic melodrama about a family and a couple, does that very much too. So but I loved it. you know. Mm. Some people think that that kind of stuff is a bit cliché and easy, but I think it worked really well.
0: Did you wish the film went for about three or four more minutes? I don't want to talk about the situation at the uh. ending, but I do feel like, without giving anything away, there is it's building up towards a particular event.
1: No, I feel very happy where it okay. left me. I don't know. I can't remember what my response was at the time, but I... I feel very happy where it left, okay. where it left. So it kind of, yeah, it just ends on some beautiful um, scenery. For a change, yeah.
0: To go back to what you were saying before about the the symbolism and the mythology and stuff, which, of course, ties into what she's a specialist in, which is, you know, classical mythology yeah. in English, is that the way that will, it makes everything clean around them. Mm. So <laughs> everything is, like, back, drawn back to its its aesthetic purpose and it's looking, everything is looking as beautiful as it can.
1: Oh, my God, that shot of her daughter's 19th birthday cake that close oh, up yes. I just I wanted to eat the cake or even just look at it and keep it in my house it was so perfect I mean everything is perfect but that cake's yeah, especially but the,
0: the t- yeah the tone of red is yes. particularly striking <laughs>
1: But before we move on, I just wanted to mention, because you've mentioned, you know, Volver, I talked to Her and All About My Mother, which are, you know, fantastic. And I love Volver so much. It's kind of similar, you know, in the the relationship between mother and daughter, although it's got that, you know, kind of funky, supernatural Mm, aspect. (laughs) But I returned to High Heels this weekend, this 1991 film, which is perhaps... Similar in that it's a a mother who returns to visit her daughter in Madrid after a 15-year absence, Uh, a performer mother, um, and she goes, and they kind of estranged, and the setup is that the daughter has married one of the mother's former lovers and that's some some tension there so they kind of have this really fraught relationship. The film is spent sort of, it's not a flashback, it's you know present day but it's the film is spent exploring their relationship and how they came to be. So does go over this material and give women a space to be you know to explore themselves on screen and I really loved it but I wanted to mention this one quote from High Heels the mother says, I've been a wonderful woman for years. It's time I became a wonderful person. Because she doesn't want to be seen as a woman anymore. She mm. just wants to be seen as equal, and I really like that. And I feel like that's kind of maybe what these movies are, are here to do, is to present you know, narratives on an equal level. Mm. But they mention also in this film, they mention Autumn Sonata, Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata. Oh, right. With Ingrid Bergman and Liv Ullman. Uh, which is another harrowing, fraught film about a mother-daughter relationship that is just so um, incredibly powerful and involving, and that that's brought up, you know, in kind of this literature of of films about um, maternal mm. relationships. So this film exists in that on that spectrum.
0: Yeah, I and mean, it's interesting because this film there was a mention of. I feel like a character in a Patricia Highsmith book. Yeah, <laughs> one character says at one point, which yeah. um, is also interesting because she's you know focused a lot on absence or people disappearing or mysteries around the Carib- uh, the Mediterranean.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I forgot about that. But anyway.
0: Mm. Yes, oh, that's definitely a film. I think we can safely recommend.
1: Yeah, and an excellent score as well. Yes, good point. I just wanted to mention the score.
0: Yes, Alberto Iglesias uh, is. He also did the score for *Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy*, which was basically this incredibly restrained, cool jazz <laughs> with, okay. um, with just you know these distant, muted trumpet and very, very delicate, high-pitched strings. So it's basically it was almost like a spy theme because it did remind me that some of the motifs were quite similar. I thought.
1: Yeah, she's trying to sort of go back over her life and figure it out. It's spy. It's it's. I think that's kind of that spy element, you know, and the, the t- picking up on the Patricia Highsmith quote mm. is what gives this film, even though it's a sad um, and heartbreaking subject matter, gives it that energy. I noticed at the very end of the credits, and I couldn't, Tell exactly what it was crediting because the credits were in Spanish, but they listed Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, perhaps as inspiration or as thank you for writing this. This is where, you know, we owe you some gratitude because if you look at the subject matter, it's quite similar in some ways. Right. Um, okay. But there is that just fun. A upbeat energy in yeah, there that makes but, it work really well.
0: Yeah, but that was, that's the thing is that it's almost a, a, a family detective drama noir in a way, yeah. <laughs> and so that was interesting that that was the music choice because uh, you know it was, I so readily associate with his work with you know the cold London or Scandinavian climates and yeah right. But again, you know, with her in the trench coat and this thing, it's, it adds this whole extra frisson really to to the, to the idea of. Now, playing detective into your own emotions and your own relationships.
1: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a beautiful film out by a Transmission Film, so get to it. Get
0: to it. <laughs> And finally today, we're going to be at Under the Shadow.
1: Under the Shadow is a film from writer-director Babak Anvari. the story of a mother, Shideh Najez Rashidi, and her daughter, Dorsa, Avin Manshadi, living in war-torn Iran in 1988 during the Iran-Iraq War under a post-revolution government. In a, their present-day Tehran, the sounds of attack and destruction are more common than silence, and air raids are a common part of the day. Shireh and Dorsa, who are at home alone because Shireh's husband is a doctor and has been placed in another part of the country, become haunted by the Persian lore spirit, or perhaps just the fear of the spirit, known as Jin, whose presence intensifies as the city empties and the threat of war becomes harder to escape. The film is touted as an Iranian horror film, and it's very effectively engaged with supernatural horror conventions. But the parallel horror is that of this woman and her child trying to survive in Iranian society in war. Andy, mm. did you succumb to the fear of the jinn? <laughs>
0: uh, yes, yes. I think this is a fantastic film. It seems, and like, um, well, first of all, I find its origins quite interesting because it's got, it's like, it's the British entry into the f- best foreign film awards at the next year's Oscars. Um, it's a British-Qatari co-production. It's shot in Jordan, it's in Farsi, and it's set in Tehran. So it's this kind of strange mix of cultures. But it feels like it's kind of been pushed into occupying a place that the Babadook occupied a couple of years ago and last year, the Witch mm. occupied, which is a horror film that comes out of Sundance with all this hype. And so it comes to Melbourne with even more hype. It's got glowing reviews um, all around the world. And there's actually there's a really good point made in one of these reviews that I was just wanting to quote here... This is from Sarah Dobbs at Den of Geek, and she wrote, Most haunted house stories involve f- families moving into abandoned places where something violent has happened in the past. In Under the Shadow, Shadet and Dorsa are in their own home when the violence comes to them, and while they're started off surrounded by people, their neighbours flee as the fighting grows closer, leaving them in a crumbling building all alone which I thought was a really great summation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think the gin itself is fantastic because it it's, touches on this huge hit local history, but at the same time it's, you know, the, the very cutting edge at the time of 1988, where you, which is represented here by the technology of war, also by Jane Fonda videos. <laughs> Jane Fonda workout
1: videos. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got connected to that. I do those at home.
0: So, so. this is yeah. I just love the way you, you can read this in so many different ways. It's like a feminist film, which taps into some of the great horror films of the last couple of decades, like mm. *Dark Water*. Hideo Nakata's *Dark Water*, which is about a mother-daughter relationship happening in an emptying apartment block or the orphanage, which is you know, a mm. woman moving back to a house with, a, you know, again with a relationship with her son. It's kind of a bit like those films, but it's also like nothing else. Like, And that point you were saying earlier about the silence and the sounds of war I think is something that is beautifully exploited in this film. Mm. That's why I recommend seeing it in a cinema too, because there are so many subtle sound designs going on with the whispering, with the sounds of war in the distance, with these um, industrial sounds. Um, and also the score, which are by Gavin Cullen and Will McGavery which I think is really, really effective in the Very way that it works. Very effective, yeah. So, yeah. in shortly, yeah. Sorry, that was a long answer. The short answer is yes.
1: You did succumb to the fear of the gin. I did too, absolutely. So, what's set up is that the gin is um, mentioned by some of the children living in the building, including Dorsa, and it's the adults, or specifically Shire, who says, "Don't be ridiculous." that's made up so she's someone who doesn't believe in this fear in this spirit and that you have this tension between her non-believing and the children and some of the other residents in the building saying no that is real you better be careful and so you're encouraged as a spectator to be on Shidae's side and not believe in in them as a real thing and I think it very effectively builds up their presence by all sorts of devices like some very typical horror film devices looks on you know things that children say or strange strange movements strange sounds you know that could be attributed to the war but could also maybe be something supernatural so it very effectively builds this presence of this spirit. So you are very unsettled by Yes, the end. yeah. yeah. I mean, and
0: there were a few things, like the mute child is always, mm. a, like, that's a terrifying prospect. Terrifying. <laughs> and I
1: really love that this film was doing quite a few things. Like, it's got that typical mother-daughter or, you know, parent-child dynamic that is present in a lot of horror films, as you said, Andy. It's got the child as the harbinger of the evil which it does very much, you know, this mute child who maybe is not mute and is, in fact, perhaps he's possessed, that's implied there. So you've got the the child as the the evil figure, which is a big deal in horror. And then at the same time, like, what I really loved about this film, and I was thinking about Wednesday, May 9, which we reviewed in the last episode, is that it opens, and it opens with Shire sitting in a a man's office needing something from him and the fact that it sets the film up as this kind of feminist perspective of a woman who wants to go back to medical school because she started medical school and she is half qualified to be a doctor and she wants to finish but she needs a man's help to get to that point so in addition to being a supernatural horror and a very effective horror movie it's also about the horrors of Iranian society and of a woman trying to get by in a society that doesn't appreciate her as a figure. And that was the opening scene and I felt very affected by that.
0: Yes, yeah. And that's also, I think, a good setting for her background, for her scepticism as well, for her mm. biomedical evidence-based scepticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, which, that was the one thing that really quite frustrated me throughout the film was her refusal to entertain any other option, or to listen to her daughter when she was talking about Kimia, her doll, yeah. and about this. And I that was like, annoyed you? Well, there was, it just felt like there was a very easy way to resolve the tension between her and her daughter. Yeah. Which, you know, it comes, from, it comes from society, the fear of being a bad parent, it comes from possibly the supernatural world, it comes from the, the way that the neighbours would talk about it. So there's all this pressure on her, and I thought, well, you know, you can solve one of these problems by listening to your daughter and doing what she thinks is real, even if it's a silly thing.
1: I really loved all of the engagement with symbolism in this film as well. The djinn the are apparently a spirit who she reads a book about them and they're a spirit that comes on the wind they say they're mysterious magical ethereal forces and they like to manifest where there is fear and anxiety so it's a perfect setting for it and you can totally understand why this spiritual being would have come to this place and to this fraught relationship between a mother and daughter that perhaps was fraught already before mm before the djinn even came and then there's a sort of shit air at one point when she's in denial she's having sort of some sort of aggressive um, confrontation with someone in the building she says dead people can't dream but then the rest of the film so a lot of the rest of the film is set up where you're like are these kind of spiritual horrific events are they dreams are they dreams because we're dead and we're in this war zone where there is no future? And I just found all of that kind of playing with that very Mm. interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really is a perfect environment. And it does feel like it's surprising we haven't seen this explored more before.
1: What? Well, the idea...
0: Well, as um, a horror film set in a war zone, basically, where there's so much anxiety and so much good reason for there being... The feeling of oppression and...
1: Yeah, and I was thinking... I did think about The Babadook because, you know, it's a fairy tale lore as is this grief spirit in The Babadook. And I was also thinking about The Noonday Witch, which you and I saw at Casper a few weeks ago and we mentioned on an earlier episode. But what I really liked about Under the Shadow, and I feel like we can't talk too much about this, but I feel like those two films had a similar progression and then they... Wound down the horror aspect And they suggested that most of it was psychological And what I really loved about this film Is that you can't quite tell Mm, And it's open-ended and it's quite unsettling I was very thankful because I'm quite jumpy and, and scared I was thankful that those, you know, typical horror conventions faded out in the film, but it does not become any less mm. terrifying. Um, and of course, the war hasn't ended, so they're still obviously stuck in this fraught environment. Yeah, so Under the Shadow played at Melbourne and Sydney film festivals, but I believe now is showing exclusively at Cinema Nova.
0: Yes, and maybe get limited release elsewhere. Or they have signed a Netflix deal.
1: Okay, well, that's very good. partly
0: why they wound up getting so much hype in going into Sundance.
1: Right, yes. But as Andy said, it's definitely a cinema film. The sound design is just incredible and Mm. very, very involving. I'm very into the sound design in this film. I don't know. And and I've spent a long time studying anxiety-inducing sound effects, and this film just goes straight there. So very good.
0: hmm so while you might be able to catch that on Netflix one day in the future, films you can catch on Mubi now, uh, wow, so there are so cool. many great ones, I don't so even know where to begin. Ones. That was a really clumsy segue, but I will just <laughs> sweep that under the carpet because they actually actually my favourite film of all time, which has been my number one film for a long time, and I know that you're not into list making like I am. Do
1: it, do but it. But I'm
0: really into it, and I'm really into this film, which is Brief Encounter, David Lean's 1945 film, starring Delia Johnson and Trevor Howard. So, at the moment, movies seem to be going through a bit of a British film season. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's great. So, we, a few episodes ago, we reviewed Great Expectations, and mm. I, I don't know when they did it, but they've actually renewed Great Expectations, so you can now go and view it again for another 28 yeah, days. Yeah, I
0: mean, in case you didn't think that was the most British film of all time, along comes Brief Encounter, which is entirely about yeah. repressed love and trains, again.
1: Yes, totally, a um, very important train film.
0: Yes, and the sanctity of domestic bliss and the inability to control the fact that you might fall in love with somebody else.
1: And another David Lean film which came on today, which neither Andy nor I had heard I know, of. I am
0: embarrassed about this.
1: The Passionate Friends from 1949, so mm. we'll be keen to check that Claude one out. Claude
0: Rains, who doesn't want to look at his face? Oh, no
1: one. No exactly. one that I want to no. know. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and the other British film I that they're showing is a Laurence Olivier Shakespeare adaptation. Henry V, yeah. Henry V, so mm. anyway, that should be exciting. Yes,
0: that's a very interesting take. I'm not sure if you've seen that one, but... I haven't, no. Well worth catching.
1: I'm also very excited about a film that I missed at MIFF, and I was very sad to miss it, uh, Ben Rivers' The Sky Trembles and The Earth is Afraid and The Two Eyes Are Not Brothers from 2015. Um, they've put that up on MUBI, so I'll be checking that one out. Mm. And also, sorry, I know I'm going on a lot, oh, no, but I'm please. very excited about um, Mubi's offerings at the moment, Evolution of a Filipino Family, Lav Diaz's 2005 film that is only 540 minutes this time. So maybe I'll take a day off from whatever I'm doing and, and give it a go. Well, I
0: mean, because they were showing a lot of short films, so it was interesting that they'd pull out that one at the end of it. Well, <laughs>
1: of the I'm season. very glad because there's, you know, not much other opportunity to see Lav Diaz films except for at MIF. It's a good opportunity if you're here in Australia.
0: Because there's some of the short films that I caught on um, William Klein's movie Broadway by Light, which I thought was really, really interesting. Yeah, I loved
1: that. So much. I want to watch it every day for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> well, you could because it's only 12 minutes long. But yeah. it does really kind of give you this beautiful snapshot of a place in time. And particularly if you've, if you've been there before or since.
1: Yeah, 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 it's,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how much Times Square changes. Or Broadway, sorry.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to um, just mention a friend of mine on Facebook a few weeks ago. Who lives in the United States, but obviously Mooby, um, in several different territories, is showing the William Klein work at the moment. Had mentioned that Mooby is showing Broadway by Light, edited by Elaine Renee, by the way. Oh, and apparently, Orson Welles called it the first film I've seen in which color was absolutely necessary. <laughs> so I don't know. I might have you know a few a few um, problems with that because you know color is necessary much thought, more.
0: But... Well, I think the Magnificent Amazons. We, we could open a whole can of words right <laughs> there. Could, anyway, should, yes. but, you know,
1: Orson Welles has a lot of really good quotes about movies, <laughs> so we can pull them out at any time. But, yes, it's definitely one worth catching. There are some other things that I wanted to say about it, though. Please do. Right, Andy. So it reminded me a lot. I mean, there's kind of this fascination with lights and with neon at the moment. I was thinking about Lawrence Johnson's Neon, the Australian filmmaker Lawrence Johnston, who made this documentary about neon lights, last year, which is actually available to rent or buy on Vimeo. Right. I love neon signs. You probably do too, especially vintage ones. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan, so that's a good one to check out. And I love that there's this appreciation for places and icons at certain times in their development, of which Broadway by Light is one. Mm -hmm. But it reminded me of this film that I saw in New York a long time ago called Square Times by uh, photographer Rudy Burkhart from 1967, which was just a brief portrait of Times Square and of what was going on. And there's a lot of attention paid to Times Square in cinema history because it's such an iconic place and it's so nice to look at, especially before the 1990s. And it's so iconic. So I love that and I really would, you know, love any chance to kind of see New York on screen as a time capsule,
0: I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be a really good exhibition you could build around that.
1: There's probably been many of them already.
0: <laughs> also, on movie, I would like to. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce this guy's name exactly, which is a bit embarrassing. Jean-Panlieve, Jean-Panlieve. Mm, yeah, he did the Vampire, Voyage to the Sky, in the Hippecampe.
1: Yeah, they've had lots of his shorts on over the last couple of mm. months. It's been very exciting. So. Yeah,
0: again, there was. I've only seen one of those before, and it was fantastic to get a chance to see the other ones. Cool. Um, I thought the Voyage to the Sky was particularly interesting. Yeah, okay. great. Okay. Given I'll... that it's like, this is what the future's going to look like, but <laughs> from the 1930s. Yeah, on your With not a very big budget. Yeah, that was the sort of stuff that I really appreciate that I don't think you you could get from Netflix or from other. Streaming outlets.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners have seen it because if you haven't, I will come and find you and make you watch it. Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7 is currently on movie, Not for all that much longer, I think, but it's just such a stunning film. One of the really early Nouvelle Vague films, mostly set in real time about this woman. She gets a uh, goes to the doctor and has two hours to wait until she gets her results, and so it's just two hours of her wandering the streets and encountering others and perhaps having a life-changing conversation and playing with lots of cats and wearing excellent dresses. So it's definitely one worth catching if you haven't already. Mm. Or watch it again, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, there's eight days left to watch that.
1: Okay, great. So wow.
0: not many excuses, really. <laughs> that brings us to the end, I think, of episode 11 yeah. of Cultural Capital. If you feel like rating us on iTunes, reviewing us, that yeah. would be brilliant. Yeah.
1: Only if you give us five stars. Yeah. I'll mm. take four as well. Yeah, I'll but take four. That That'll be very helpful if you wanted to head over on iTunes and do that. That would yes. be great for us. we'd
0: really appreciate it. Um, you can also find us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast or The Cult Cap Pod on Twitter. And on Twitter, you are...
1: I am at Eloise Low Ross. You can follow me there.
0: I'm, and you can find me at Andy Ricky.
1: And let us know what you think of our opinions or our chats today or if you have any tips that you, you know, something we missed out on, then let us know. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Yes. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another special guest and a great batch of films. <laughs>